Good morning. morning. Let's make class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for the truth of your kingdom. And at this time, we we pray that your spirit will enlighten our minds, uh, bring us closer together to to Jesus, which brings us closer together to each other and make us more effective in, in sharing this message with the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are starting a new quarter today, and the full title is, In These Last Days, The Message of Hebrews. And uh, before we actually get into the, the lesson study, just a few thoughts on the book of Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Uh, Paul is where most Christians, and, and my personal view as well, uh, in the first four centuries after Christ, the, uh, it was an uncertain question. The, it went back and forth. Uh, people didn't have a conclusion, but the church finally settled on Paul. And this, uh, and then more recent scholars have questioned the authorship of Paul. And they question the authorship of Paul because of the writing style, his, his the the way the the prose are written and the language that's selected are different than the epistles, and and then the the quoting of the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrews are ex- essentially perfectly quoted out of the Greek New Testament, whereas all of Paul Paul quoted out of both Greek and Hebrew New Te- uh, excuse me quoted out of Greek Old Testament. Okay, the, the, the New Testament writer quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament, word for word, whereas Paul quoted from the Hebrew version in his epistles. And so for these reasons, people have suggested that Paul, in fact, did not write it. The most likely explanation, however, and the one that I, I actually settle on, is that um, Paul was the inspired source for the truths, and he had a, a penman uh, write for him, either Timothy or Luke, who were the ones who actually wrote down the things that Paul was kind of, so they had kind of a transcriptionist uh, transcribing his thoughts. But the question of authorship of Hebrews is actually not really a relevant question for for the true Bible scholar. Uh, It's not relevant for determining truth. Uh, It ultimately isn't the important question. It makes no difference uh, any more than the authorship of Ellen White's writings that some have questioned. Uh, the only truly relevant question is, is it true? <laughs> That's the relevant question. Is it true? Does it harmonize with the rest of Scripture? Does it carry forward truths, and does it hold to the principles that God has revealed to the rest of Scripture? It is the spiritually immature, though, who make a big deal out of authorship. Always the immature. Why? Because children are those who haven't yet developed their own ability to discern right from wrong. Hebrews talks about the mature, are those who've developed the ability to discern the immature, haven't developed that ability. And if you don't have that ability, then you need an authority to tell you the answer. Rules too, but an authority. You need a referee. You need an umpire. You need a judge. You need a teacher. You need an expert to do your thinking and tell you the answer, and thus you have to determine who wrote it to know whether they're an expert, to know whether you can believe it, because you can't evaluate the content yourself to determine whether it's true. You have to only believe because the authority said it was true. And children are kind of concrete thinkers, too. They have to be in a sort of a box. (laughs) Yes, and and, and children are not, uh, and these immature, they're not evil. They want to be good children. They want to obey. They want to do what's right. They don't want to get in trouble. They just don't know how to determine what's right, and so they need someone to tell them what the rules are so they can obey them. 
And so the question for the immatures is not what's true. The question for the immature is who said it? Who's the authority? And that's why in Adventism, you will constantly, as I present truth, you will constantly have people saying, what did, what did Sister White say? <laughs> and what they're looking for is an authority to, and, and, they, and I can present it from even from Scripture and reason and evidence and cause and effect and all kinds of things. And they'll be uncomfortable until I give a Sister White quote that endorses it, and then they're okay. <laughs> you, 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 you see this happen all the time. But this type of thinking, remember, they're not evil. They're just still struggling to grow. And, and, and it's because, and the reason they're so concerned about the authorship is because they don't want to trust the wrong person. They don't want to get tricked. But this type of thinking is like somebody who doesn't know how to do math saying, well, why should I believe that 12 times 12 is 144? We don't know who wrote that answer. Uh, if we're sure a Nobel Prize laureate mathematics wrote it, then we could believe that that's the answer. But since we don't know who wrote it, we can't trust that, that that's the answer. Why? Because they don't know how to do math. If they know how to do math, then it doesn't really matter who wrote it. That's the right answer. So why do I believe that it was authored by Paul and was penned by an assistant? Because the theology of Hebrews is the same theology in all of Paul's epistles, namely that rituals of the Jewish service are incapable of providing salvation. They're merely teaching tools to point to Christ. And it is Jesus who is the fulfillment of the scripture. It is Jesus who completes the object lesson. It is Jesus who opens the way back to God. It is Jesus who restores unity to God. It is Jesus that takes away sin. So it's always pointing back to Jesus. And everything else in that whole ritualistic system was simply pointing to the ministry of Christ. So the message of Hebrews is to transfer one's faith from rituals to Jesus, from animals, from priests, from buildings and festivals and sacrifices to Jesus. That's the message of Hebrews. Our faith is in him. What's interesting, as we still talk about Hebrews, is that the great reformer, Martin Luther, did not believe Hebrews was inspired. There were four books that he took and put in the back. He kept him in, but he put him in the back and said he could not find Christ in these four books, and he did not think they were inspired. And those four books were Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. And this is quite significant, as these books are the ones that most clearly teach the great controversy perspective. War in heaven. Not only did Luther reject these four books, he rejected the idea that there was a war in heaven. Because he worshipped an authoritarian, all-powerful, sovereign God, and it was silliness to him that anybody could challenge his authority and there could actually be war in heaven. It's just not possible. He's too powerful. He's too sovereign. How do you think sin began then? It was a mystery. I have no doubt personally that Luther was led by the Holy Spirit to break away from the lies that he perceived. Not all the lies that were being taught or had infected Christianity, but he was led to break away from the lies that he perceived. But it wasn't expected that how deeply embedded he was into those lies that he would perceive and break away from them all. That's why the Reformation did not end with Luther. It didn't end with Luther. The Reformation has continued. 
And this is why we esteem Luther as a man of courage. You can't, I can't imagine the courage. Just, just think where we are today. There are some people who don't have the courage simply to stand up in a land of so-called liberty where you still have judicial protections where you can still actually, uh, where, where, where even if you don't do it, you, you might get fired from your job, but they're not going to drag you out and burn you at the stake. Not yet anyway. <laughs> he stood up. There was no real place that he could truly flee. He, he had some support from some of the princes in Germany. But he was under threat. True threat to his life. What a man of courage. We admire Luther. But we certainly do not teach 500-year-old ideas and don't hold to a a theology that denies four books of the Bible, the four books that are most critical in the Great Controversy view. Sadly, though, many theologians, even in the SDA church, continue to advance a theology that depends on Luther's legal model of atonement. And Luther's the originator of the penal substitution model. It's interesting that two of those four books were written by Jesus' own brothers. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that he would knock those out. They've had a lifetime, their lifetime of experience with him as a brother before he even got into ministry. Yes. And, and, and Luther was coming from a background where he was very conditioned against the authority and the power of the church manipulating the minds of the people. And so his theology was designed to uh, eviscerate or take away certain power from the uh, systemized church, particularly uh, how the church um, manipulated people with the doctrine of purgatory and that uh, dead people were, were, if they, all their sins weren't purged through the church sacraments and so forth prior to their death, they went to purgatory and they would be uh, suffering for as long as they deserved there until the rest of their sins got paid for or punished or purged. But you could accelerate the purging of their sins if you gave an indulgence or a payment to the church. That would, that could then launch your loved ones out of purgatory into heaven. And so he wanted to do away with this whole idea that, that was uh, keeping people in fear and manipulation of the church. And so he taught the idea that all sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ at the cross, and God punished all the sins in Jesus, and therefore there's no unpunished sins for those who have accepted Christ. They've all been purged, and so there's no, no purpose of purgatory. It doesn't exist. So you either go to heaven or hell. So his whole doctrine of penal substitution was designed to eviscerate the doctrine of purgatory. And, 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 and again, it's a made-up doctrine still based on the premise that God's law works like human law and requires punishment for sin. It's just that they're all punished in Jesus rather than punished in the person. Paid for in Jesus rather than paid for with indulgences or sacraments or other church works. But it's still all a penal legal model. He didn't break out of that. All right, Sunday's lesson, fourth paragraph in Sunday's lesson. It says, at the beginning of the Christian church, God poured his spirit upon the apostles in Jerusalem so that they were able to announce the gospel in languages previously unknown to them and to perform miracles. Uh, Philip performed similar wonders in Samaria, Peter in Joppa and Caesarea, and Paul throughout the, his ministry in Asia Minor in Europe. These powerful uh, deeds were ex- experiential evidence that confirmed the message of salvation, the establishment of the kingdom of God, and a salvation from condemnation and freedom from evil powers. So what do you think about this idea that the miracles were confirmation of the message of salvation, and how should we handle miracles today? In other words, if someone performs a miracle today, and it's confirmed, it's real, and it's not questioned, a miracle was performed. 
we accept that fact, something supernatural happened, a sign or a wonder, does that mean the message that they present is from God? Should miracles convince us? We must use the integrative, evidence-based approach where we harmonize Scripture with science and nature and our experiences. So seeing a miracle or even experiencing one would be an experience. Our experience has to be harmonized with Scripture and with sciences uh, and with science, all three threads harmonizing. Does the Scripture give us wisdom on how to handle miracles? Yes, it does. So Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. We just did Deuteronomy last quarter, but here's what it says in Deuteronomy. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and all your souls. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commandments and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. So if someone appears and does signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus, or the name of Jehovah, or the name of Yahweh, or the name of Yeshua, But they teach a God who makes up laws and is required to punish sinners for unrepentant sin. Should we listen to them? Or are they presenting Satan's view of God? A God that you really aren't to know. You're to know the God who Jesus revealed. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. The only way this can happen is if you experience what Jesus said in John 17, 3. Life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and no ascent. It is a personal, experiential knowledge of God. We have to know him for ourselves. So imagine if someone came to you and performed signs and wonders and miracles, and they're real. They're not magician's tricks. They're real. You're convinced it's a real miracle. And then after the miracle, they tell you that your spouse has sent them to you. And they claim that your spouse says that you should do thus and so. But what they say is completely out of character with what you know about your spouse. What do you do? You don't listen to them, do you? doesn't really matter whether your spouse is dead. You're not able to talk to your spouse. You've got a message confirmed by miracle that's claimed from your spouse. The question is, do you know your spouse well enough that if they tell you something that's completely out of character from your spouse, can you trust it? This is the point. If you don't know God, if you only know about God, this is the point. If you don't know God for yourself, you don't know his message, you've not had an experience with him. Then somebody else coming, claiming from a message from God, can deceive you. So, what does it mean the Lord is testing? The Lord is testing you. What's it mean? 
This is what we are facing right now. Real time, human history, the last couple of years, the world is being tested. The Lord is testing people. This is how the Bible talks. The Lord is testing. Now, does the Lord send a fake prophet to do fake miracles or real miracles from a false doctrine? Does the Lord give him power to do those? No, these are not miracles that the Lord has empowered them to do. So how is it the Lord's testing? The Lord isn't causing these problems to occur. So how is it the Lord's testing? This is how the Bible talks. Why is the Lord testing? The Lord is testing every person. So we are facing in the human history. The Lord is giving opportunity to test our mettle. To test our resolve. To test our commitment. To test our sincerity. To test our character. To test our religious beliefs. To test our devotion. To test our beliefs. To test our faith. Who do we trust? Are we going to operate on fear and selfishness, protect self? When, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were on the, on the plain of Dura, they were being tested. Now, God did not inspire the false prophets to, to tempt Nebuchadnezzar to set up the idol. God wasn't behind that. Satan was behind that. But these three worthies were tested, were they not? Job was tested in the first chapter of Job. Every, this is the point. Now, we talk about the world, the world coming to being attacked. The world is being tested right now. God is allowing these events to unfold so that every person is faced with a decision. Truth, love, freedom, God's principles and how we live, or the world system. Yeah. And the reason you would be tested all the time are that, like Moses to show the universe how he had changed when he was tested here versus there. He had changed his mode. He had grown in his relationship with God, and he no longer reacted the way he did. And also, another reason for testing is to strengthen what you have done in the past, to test you over and over until you're strong enough to reach what's coming. Okay, I love what she just did there. I hope you heard what she just did, because I was going to do it if you didn't, but you did it. Okay. Not everyone is actually tested in the way that Job and Moses were. Job and Moses were tested as a as an evidence to others looking in. The test of Job in Job one wasn't to strengthen Job. God had already pronounced he's perfect and righteous in all his ways. He had already arrived at that place. Job's testing wasn't for Job's development. Moses, at that point in time, wasn't for his either when he said, I'll take my name out of the book. He'd already settled at that point in his loyalty. But, so so that reason is a valid reason that testing sometimes happens to people as a revelation to those who can't read hearts and minds, including angels, can't read hearts and minds, that God's methods work, that hearts have been healed and been transformed and changed. It reveals, it puts, it puts the, what's the, the proof is in the pudding? Okay, people can preach. Don't as many preachers you know, don't do what I preach. Don't do what I, uh, I say. Do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> the old thing. Okay, no, it's, it's it's actually this is the test. Do we live by what we claim we live by? Are we really loyal to Jesus? Is He really the first love in our life? Okay, it's easy to claim it when there's no difficulty in the claim. It's when times get tough that true character is revealed. Okay. And so, so one is the revelation. But the two is actually very true as well. The Lord brings people, if they have a struggle in their life, the Lord allows or brings them to places over and over again 
where they will face the same temptation over and over again because the Lord cannot free you from something without you choosing to say no at the time. You have to reject it. You have to say, no, I won't go down that path again. No, I'm not going to do that again. And then the Lord can empower you and the Lord can transform you. But he can't transform you when you're choosing, continue to choose to, to say yes to it. And so the Lord doesn't bring you there to trip you up in the same way that the tree was placed in the, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden was for them to face the question and for them to choose to reject the lie and for them to choose to loyalty to God and they would have been sealed and settled into their loyalty to God. So yes, there's this aspect of testing that solidifies our loyalty, our devotion, our principles, the methods. Have we been settled so much that we would rather die than betray our loyalty to God? Well, Daniel was in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at the fiery furnace. Paul clearly was. Stephen was. There are many examples through history of people who settle. And there are some who don't and then do. There's some of the reformers who initially under threat uh, recanted and then recanted their recantation. <laughs> okay? And then, and then settled, right? So this is a journey for all of us. So this is what it's talking about. When the times get tough, will we protect others, live God's principles, or we sacrifice others to protect ourselves? The Bible prophesies that it, when this happens, families will turn against their own families. Parents will turn against their children. Children will turn against their parents, rat each other out to the, the authorities. We see this happening. We see it being encouraged in certain states. Governors are saying, rat on your families at the holidays if they're, not, if they're visiting and not wearing masks and so forth and so on. It's a, a complete corruption of character. Fear-driven, me first. Remember, Jesus said in the last days, people will do all kinds of miracles in his name. Yet you hence, you workers, and think, I never knew you. Miracles can be counterfeited, the truth cannot. Satan does not have the truth on his side. He can counterfeit miracles and present lies, but he will never practice the methods of God. When Satan's grand deception finally comes, and this is not the grand one yet, folks, what's happening in the world today is a setup. It's a conditioning of your mind. It is an inflaming of fear. It is a justifying of self-preservation. It is a, it is a through the systems of law making people feel good about exploiting and hurting others because it's legal to do so. That's what's happening. Conditioning you to think it's righteous to coerce and compel other people. That's what's happening in the world. And it's setting people up to accept that premise, that policy, that way of practicing, so that when Satan does come and impersonate Christ and use these same methods, when he comes, he'll, he'll first speak eloquently, he'll speak gently, he'll speak of love, he'll speak of his desire to save, he'll speak of his desire to heal, he'll speak of the greater good, he'll speak of all these things. And then he will identify a subgroup, a small remnant minority, who won't go along with him, as enemies, as dangers, they're threats. And he loves us and he just wants to protect us. But if we won't comply, then we have to be imprisoned and eventually killed. Because it's for the greater good. It's what love does. And most of the world will say, this is our God, we've waited for him. This is what's happening, folks. 
This is what this virus is really about. It is not about a physiological disease that need to, it is about conditioning your mind to accept evil methodologies. The primary uh, deception at the end is not going to be over the core doctrines. He is not going to come claiming that Jesus is not Lord. He will claim Jesus is Lord. And he's him. And he will claim that Jesus died for our salvation. And he will uh, claim the authority of the law of God. And the law must be obeyed. And that it is wicked and, and, and sinful to transgress the law. And he paid the price of law-breaking. And he's here to now save us, but if we won't obey the law, then justice requires punishment if you won't, if you won't comply. Do you know how many Christians are going to accept that? And what happens if he also says, and the law that you need to obey is weekly Sabbath observance. You must join together and worship me every Sabbath. But, but, but he didn't say Sunday. How can I possibly know it's not, it's not Jesus then? Well, I looked at his feet. But he floats. He never touches the ground. That's a miracle, floating. The floating miracle. Just like walking on water. You see, if you don't understand God's character and his methods, so many are going to be deceived. The last paragraph. The Spirit gave early Christian believers the conviction that their sins had been forgiven, thus they were not fearful in the judgment. I just want to point out, this conviction of having our sins forgiven is an important experience to have as we come to Christ. The natural impact of sin upon heart, mind, and soul of the sinner, the natural consequence of sin is guilt, shame, internal condemnation, and fear. Fear of punishment, fear of rejection. That's what sin causes in the sinner. I'm no good. We deserve punishment. This is what sin it warps us. It warps our thinking and our feelings, and we project that out of ourselves back onto God, and we're convinced that God sees us the way sin has caused us to see us. We don't deserve his love. We're horrible. We're worms. We're corrupt. We're terrible. We deserve punishment. This is what sin causes. And therefore, we view God as angry and wrathful and, and uh, mad and, and that justice requires that he act out against us. And we create theologies to hide and protect us. And so in the salvation process, it's absolutely important that the sinner hear that God forgives and know that God is not against them. They must know that. And it's joyful to experience the conviction of the Spirit that you are forgiven of God. Isn't it joyful to have that peace? Yes. So God meets the sinner in their place of fear and condemnation, in their place of guilt and shame, and communicates that we're forgiven. That's what he said to the, the, the paralytic who was paralyzed, but his primary concern wasn't about walking. He met him there and said, your sins are forgiven. Oh, what peace and joy filled his soul. But understand, the barrier 
the obstacle to our unity with God is not from God. There is nothing in God that keeps us separate from him. There is no anger, there's no wrath, there's no unforgiving attitude. Nothing in God blocks our approach to God. Nothing. God needed nothing done to him. The obstacle to our reconciliation with God is sin in us. That's the obstacle. That's the blockade. It's our fear. It's our guilt. It's our shame. It's our preference for lies and self-centeredness. That's the obstacle. There's no obstacle in God. He does not bar the way. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish with everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Notice the purpose. Not for condemnation's sake. There was never a, a, a condemnation. It was to save and then continuing. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe him stands condemned already. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Romans, this was, uh, this was John 3, 16 to 18. Romans 8, 1 or 8, 31? No yeah, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. But those who are not in Christ Jesus stand condemned already by their sin condition. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are not born... In legal trouble, we're born in lethal trouble. We have a terminal condition, dead in trespass and sin. But Christianity, in fact, with the false law view, has understood that we're born in legal trouble and God is angry and God is wrathful and something has to be done to God to remove the barrier from God's side. Understand this is taught in all circles of Christianity, including Adventist Christianity, and it's fraudulent, it's false, it distorts God's character. If you want to read about it, there's a book published by the Reeve called The Cross of Christ, written by a bunch of theologians, and it was used as a, as a template text to oppose our class. And in that, it says specifically that nowhere in the Bible does it say that um, God had to be reconciled to man. It only teaches that man had to be reconciled to God. It says that. But then it goes on to say, but, um, but the barrier to sin had to be removed from both man and God. Says it in the book, even though they acknowledge the Bible doesn't teach it. In spite of this fact, they go. But in spite of this fact, in spite of what the Bible teaches, we know better because of the premise of the imposed law construct, which is a lie. A 19th-century evangelist, evangelist George MacDonald, wrote the following, and it's uh, in a book called "Discovering the Character of God." What a good title! It says, the Lord never came to deliver men from the consequences of their sins while those sins yet remain. It's like saying, uh, the doctor never came to relieve people from the fever and, and cough that they have while the pneumonia still remains. You see, that's very, that's very sensible. Exactly correct. Okay? Yet feeling nothing of the dread hatefulness of their sin, men have constantly taken the word that the Lord came to deliver us from our sins to mean that he came to save us from the punishment of the sins. This idea has terribly corrupted the preaching of the gospel. The message of the good news has not been communicated, unable to believe in the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, imagining him not at liberty to forgive or incapable of forgiving forthright. 
not really believing him God who was fully our Savior, but a God bound, either in his own nature or by a law above him and compulsory upon him, to exact some recompense or satisfaction for sin, meaning that he's required to punish. This is Satan's life in the beginning. Continuing on. A multitude of religious teachers have taught their fellow men that Jesus came to bear our punishment and save us from hell. But in that, they have misrepresented his true mission. Exactly correct. God forgave us freely. There was never an unforgiving attitude on God's part. The barrier to our reconciliation with God has never been on God's side. Nothing had to be done to God or God's law. Everything had to be done in humanity to remove sin from the mind, heart, character of human beings so that we could live in God's presence again. That's the plan of salvation. I'm going to just skip ahead because I have so much in the lesson I want to get to. Remember the Oswald Chambers statement about condemnation? Condemnation. The condemnation comes when we reject the light. We are not condemned. He goes, sin is something I'm bored with. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having a heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes when I realize that Christ came to deliver me from the heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. That, and he quotes now what we just quoted out of John. This is the condemnation in the critical moment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. When we reject the light of Christ and prefer the darkness of sin, that's when we get condemned. We're born with a condition we didn't choose, and we're only condemned when we reject the remedy that Jesus provides. That's when condemnation comes. So the condemnation comes when we refuse the remedy, when we choose fear and selfishness over love, when we choose lies over truth, when we choose hate and resentment over forgiveness, when we choose choose cruelty over kindness, coercion over freedom, force over liberty. And the world is being tested right now. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Condemnation is coming for all those who choose the methods of Satan over the methods of Christ. Because they're choosing to reject that which would free them from fear and selfishness. So when we do this, we condemn ourselves because we're refusing the spirit and the principles of truth, love, and liberty the spirit brings. God wants to free us from the power of sin and evil by giving us opportunities. He does it by giving us opportunities to choose. That's what he does. He gives us opportunities to make choices. And as we choose him and trust him in how we govern ourselves, we choose how we govern ourselves. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had to choose, bow or don't bow. That was completely their choice. Everything that happened after that in the story was not their choice. Whether they were just left free, whether somebody saw them and drug them into Nebuchadnezzar, some, some monitoring group, some police agency, some national security agency, some FBI, somebody was out there monitoring and they, and, you know, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't on the plane and didn't spot that. They had some law enforcement agency out there and drugged them in. They didn't control what those people did. They didn't control what Nebuchadnezzar did. They didn't control what Jesus did. They only controlled what choices they made in governance of self. And Satan inflames our fears to get us to betray our faith and trust in God, to choose his methods to protect ourselves. 
God permits this to happen, as we were saying earlier, Romans 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Note the progression. Suffering, trials, difficulties in this world bring decision points. Do we fill our duty to God as God gives them to us, or are we negligent? Do we turn to God, stand firm on his principles, trusting with outcomes, or do we take events into our own hands, uh, and when circumstances conspire against our best efforts and we find ourselves behind in our bills, do we then steal, do we embezzle, do we cheat in order to, to make ends meet, or do we trust God with outcomes? Do we turn to the destructive substances or practices to help to medicate away uncomfortable feelings we have inside? Or do we go to God, get professional help, do the hard work of healing the brokenness inside? It is only by choosing God, his methods, wrestling out the painful feelings in our trust relation with God, that we grow, that character develops, that our trust and faith strengthen. And notice what happens when we make those choices. He says, he pours his love into our hearts. What the text said, he pours his love into our hearts. And love casts out fear. Trials, difficulties do not go away for the faithful. But the frantic efforts to fix everything ourselves goes away. We have an inner peace in the face of the storms. Joseph and Daniel had real-life struggles, real enemies, real problems. There is no doubt in my mind they struggled with emotions of anxiety and disappointment and hurt and rejection and fear. They had these emotions to face. There's no doubt. They had many sleepless nights, I'm sure. But did God ever abandon them? Did God ever abandon them? They were never abandoned. They were never cast off. And because they trusted God in the difficulties, not only did they grow in faith, but they were used in mighty ways to achieve outcomes in other people's hearts and minds, to be witnesses. This is to be our experience at this time in history. God is wanting people to stand up in the face of what seems overwhelming powers for his principles. This is out of the book Education, page 57. The greatest want of the world... See, and listen to this description and see if you believe it's true that this is the greatest want of the world today. The greatest want of the world is the want of people, people who will not be bought or sold, people who in their inmost soul are true and honest, people who do not fear to call sin by its right name, people whose conscience is as true to duty as needle to the pole, people who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Such a character is not the result of accident. It is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. A noble character is the result of self-discipline, of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature, the surrender of self for the service of love to God and man. Do we have a need and is there a want in the world for this today? Do you look around the world and do you see the debasement of human character? Do you see the impulse, animalistic control, the lack of respect for fellow human beings, the willingness to hurt, exploit, take, cheat, steal, run over, abuse others, and then claim it's your right to do so? Monday's lesson asks us to read Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. 
It says, remember though, this is out of the NIV, remember those early days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated, stood side by side with others being persecuted and and publicly insulted. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. Do you have something that's more valuable to you than your property? Do you value your integrity more than your property? Are people of conscience being publicly exposed to insult and persecution today? Are we standing by those who are honoring God with their bodies and not submitting to government mandates, or are we colluding with the government to compel people to act against their conscience? Not your conscience, their conscience. And what happens if we side with the government and use the power or authority of our office to compel people? What happens to us? What does it mean to sympathize with those in prison? Is this talking about sympathizing with those like Barabbas, thief and murderer? Or is it talking about uh, is it, it's talking about those Stephen, those who have in their heart to hurt others and still want to get out so they can hurt other people more? The serial rapist who, who wants to get out of prison? Is this talking about that suggesting that, that we should let exploiters and those who intend to do evil out of prison, that we should defund the police because we sympathize with them? Is that what this is talking about? Or is it speaking of sympathizing with those who have been wrongly imprisoned? Imprisoned because of the cause of Christ because they stood up for conscience. There are people in this world today being imprisoned because they won't go along with mandates against their conscience. If we want to apply this idea of sympathizing with people in prison more broadly because we have a prison ministry, then what is the godly way we sympathize with those who are in prison for actual crimes? We bring them the good news about God. We recognize that they are suffering from sin sickness. And we want to bring them the remedy of Jesus Christ that will, if accepted, change them from an enemy into a friend and transform them. But if they don't accept it, then we grieve for them, we sympathize, we grieve for them because they will only get sicker in heart, mind and character, but we don't let them out of prison to injure themselves more by more dastardly deeds, nor to injure others just because we sympathize with them. We don't do that. We can still sympathize with them, but we don't ignore the reality of their condition. Lesson asks us to read Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for his reward. What's the lesson for us today? 
Can we apply a lesson here to us today? Well, sometimes the, I always think the enemy of the best is the good. There's nothing wrong with leading out in, in Egypt per se, but that was the enemy of the best, which was following God and his leadership. Moses, when he grew up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh. It didn't say he refused to have leadership responsibilities. You're, you're not wrong about that. I'm just pointing out. The issue here was who he was going to be known as. This is his identity. Well, Ellen White says he was being groomed. He was to be the next Pharaoh. Correct. And so, you know, he, was, he had a choice of leading a whole nation versus following what God said, which led him into the wilderness. So do we, by faith, love and trust Jesus more than all others? Do we identify as our identity, who, when you think, who I am, think that, who am I? Ask the question, who am I? Do we identify as being part of the family of God above all other identities or the son or daughter of so-and-so? Where's your first identity? I'm a child of God. I'm the son of so-and-so. I'm the daughter of so-and-so. Do we identify first and foremost as an image bearer of Jesus, Christian? Or do we identify first as an American, an Australian, a Canadian, a South African, or whatever nationality you are? Do we identify first and foremost as a follower of Christ? Or do we see ourselves first as white, African American, Asian, Native American, Danish, is our first identity, when we think of ourselves, always Christ-like, Christian, or do we have other, well, that's down there somewhere, but I'm first American, and I'm white American, and do we identify first and foremost as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or do we identify as a follower of Paul, or Apollos, or Luther, or Wesley, or Joseph Smith, or Ellen White, or Graham Maxwell, or Tim Jennings? What's our first and foremost identity? Well, I'll tell you, I served in the U.S. Army, and I was conditioned to see the uniform first. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, first thing you see, and then immediately after that rank, immediate, I mean, I was, you, you get really quick at this. You, you size people up very quickly. Rank, and immediately you not only look to rank, you look to their insignia to see what their, what their service branches, are they medical, are they medical service corps, are they engineering, are they infantry, what's their, what's their insignia? And you look at their unit branch, what unit are they in your chain of command, somebody else's chain of command? Uh, do they have authority over you just because they have rank over you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You immediately, and, and you see people people through the lens of the uniform. This is what happens. And the military conditioned me to evaluate people very quickly. And all this stuff, by the way, oh, they have any merit badges, uh, jump wings or, or submarine training or, or whatever that they wear on their uniform, merit badges. Do they have any, any if they're in the dress uniform, do they, what, what are their ribbons? Do they have purple heart? Uh, do they have silver star, bronze star? Uh, what, what, are their, what are their ribbons? What, 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 what have they done for the country? So very quickly, the military conditions people to evaluate others based on merit, ability, achievement, training, experience, and not race. I, I really rarely, rarely noticed the race of the people. I did notice their rank. I did notice their time in service. I did notice the branch that they were in. I did notice any achievements that they've made. I noticed those things very quickly. But military also conditioned me to identify myself as a patriot. 
proud to be an American. This was part of who I became in my identity. And I knew that America was better than every other nation in the world. And I, as an American, better than anyone because I'm an American. This is part of the esprit de corps. This is part of the mindset. You don't have a successful military if you train them to be inferior to everyone else. Well, you're not as good, and you guys, you guys, really, you guys really lose most of the time, and, and everybody else is better than you guys. This is not the mindset of a successful military, is it? No. So, this was a, so I came to view myself this way. But as I've grown spiritually, I've realized this is just another trap of Satan. It's another trap. Human nation states are not part of God's kingdom. America is not part of God's kingdom. America's part of Satan's domain. All the nations in this world are his. And it's been a painful process to me to cut those affections and attachments out of my heart and to identify first and foremost as a Christian. That doesn't mean I lose the cognizance and the factual awareness of my national citizenship. Paul was aware and utilized his Roman citizenship. But he didn't identify as Roman. He identified as Christian. And that's the choice that I make. Identify as Christian. Yes. If he had stuck to the line of becoming Pharaoh, the Israelites could have, could have gone home much sooner. Probably. Incorrect. Okay. If he had stuck to the line of, of, of being Pharaoh, then he would have had a loyalty and a responsibility. He took his oath of office to advance and protect Egypt. They wouldn't have left the land. They would have perhaps been freed from slavery, but they would have been a well-compensated employee staying in the land of Egypt to build up the land of Egypt. I don't see him leaving if he's the Pharaoh of Egypt, lead, leaving Egypt. He has a responsibility there to govern and run Egypt. And you look at Joseph. He became sort of prime minister of Egypt, and we laud him for, you know, how he got everybody through the, through the famine and all that. But if you really look at what he did, he sold everyone's individuality, all their belongings, everything about their, themselves became the pharaohs. They no longer owned property. They had nothing. And Joseph did that. We are living in perilous times, folks. Do we value the methods of God? Truth, love, liberty supremely. So like Moses, we choose to be mistreated with the people of God who stand for conscience, who stand for liberty. Or do we prefer the pleasures of this world and will compromise God's principles to maintain our privileges? Lesson asks us to read 1 Peter 4. Let's start with 4.14. Let's start with verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at this painful trial you are suffering as though some strange, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
For it, it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? What's being described? Those who reject the principles of God will always persecute those who stand by the principles of God. Always, always, always. If you stand for the principles of God, those who don't stand for those principles, to the degree they have the power and ability to do so, will persecute you. It might be, in your circumstance, the only thing they can do is ignore you, leave your company, no longer associate with you, gossip about you. To the degree they have other authorities and powers over you, they'll ruin your, your business. They'll take your business. They'll imprison you. This is what they always do. And they do it because they're not at peace with themselves. They can never be at peace. Understand, you cannot be at peace while living out of harmony with God's laws. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's like, it's like trying to say, you, you can't have health while violating the laws of health. You just can't do it. You might be able to deceive yourself by having some euphoric experiences, taking destructive substances that gives you a buzz or a high, and during that moment of buzz or high, you allow yourself to believe you're in some higher state and you're getting healthier, but you're not getting healthier. You're damaging yourself. Some people, when they get those the power and control over the moment of their exploitation of somebody, they get a, a they feel empowered and they think, oh yes, I'm 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 the best, but they're actually not getting healthy. They're getting worse. Christ Object Lessons 151. Whoever trusts in him that is righteous will... Whoever trusts in him... Excuse me, let me start over. Whoever trusts in himself that he is righteous will despise others. As the Pharisee judges himself by other men, so he judges other men by himself. His righteousness is esteemed by, estimated by theirs, and the worse they are, the more righteous by contrast he appears. His self-righteousness leads to accusing other, other men he condemns as transgressors of God's law. Thus he is making manifest the very spirit of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. With this, with this spirit, it is impossible for him to enter into communion with God. He goes down to his house destitute of the divine blessing. Christ's Object Lesson 151. This is exactly what's happening in COVID, guys. Exactly what's happening in COVID. The safest people in our society are the unvaccinated recovered. Long-term, broad, broad, robust immunity. But the powers that be deny truth. They deny the evidence. They deny the facts. And they continue to project the lie that the unvaccinated are the unsafe, the ones spreading it. If you haven't seen the data, by the way, if you still operate under the fantasy, and it's fantasy, and anybody wants to challenge me on this, bring it on. It's fantasy if you think COVID ever goes away with vac- these things called vaccinations. I don't know if you've seen the data, but multiple animal populations are now infected with SARS-CoV-2. In some states, more than 50% of the deer population that they've tested are actively infected with SARS-CoV-2. Meaning that these animal populations are reservoirs for mutations that will come back into the human population. You're not going to vaccinate all the animals in the country, in the world. It's not going to happen. 
even if they worked, which they don't, because they were never actual vaccines by any standard. They were therapeutics designed to diminish severity of illness, not stop infection, not stop reinfection, not stop spread. It was all a big scam and a big lie to control, because the real thing is conditioning your minds, folks, to accept authoritarian, irrational rules to restrict liberties and coerce consciences. That's the whole, that's the whole gambit. And people go, well, how can you say the whole world? How can so many nations do it together? I'll tell you how. After 2001 and the anthrax attacks, if you remember the anthrax attacks that happened with certain government officials and the mail that these anthrax things kept popping up all over the place, um, the national security agencies and the intelligence agencies of all the major Western countries got together and started running an annual war game on, a war game on a pandemic, a pandemic war game from all the countries. They got together every year and they had a war game. And the lead, and the lead, and they had this certain playbook that they had. They practiced the playbook from all the major nations of the world. And they've been doing it for 20 years, every year for 20 years, since 2001. And guess who's in charge of each of the nations around the world, the major nations of the world, the people who are in charge of their COVID response are the exact people who have been running this war game in every one of these nations. And they all have the exact same playbook and they're running their playbook. This is not an accident. The entire vaccine, so-called jab approach, has been built on lies. I will tell you, this new Omni version, actually, Omicron version, not Omni, Omicron version, my understanding so far, the latest news that I've seen, there's new news and I want to see it, so I'll update, but what I've seen so far is there's, there's been one reported death in the world from uh, 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 Omicron. One reported death in the world. It is more contagious than any version so far, spreads faster, least virulent. One death in the world so far, yet multiple governors of certain philosophical and political background in our country have shut down more liberties because of this thing that is no more virulent now than the common cold. Do you know what the rational approach would be? Because this has been documented in multiple countries now to not be virulent, to be contagious. You know what the rational approach would be? Correct. Let it spread. Remove all barriers. Remove all barriers. Let it spread. This is the version you want. You'll get it, and you'll develop broad-based immunity with antibodies to 50 different sites on the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus so that any future mutations you'll be immune to. Did you know that people who had SARS-CoV-1 that SARS-CoV-1 is 80% the same as SARS-CoV-2. The viruses are 80% the same. 80% of the genetic material representations is over the same. And so people at SARS-CoV-1 actually have immunity to SARS-CoV-2. They've documented that now. Because, because of the 50-some viruses, 80% of the, of the antibodies they produced are effective against SARS-CoV-2. It's quite interesting, folks, the misinformation and the lies you've been told. So if you want to talk about a pandemic that's real, we live in a pandemic of fear, a propaganda pandemic. 
a pandemic of misinformation that's designed to make you frightened so that it will instill and inflame up survival drives that will drive more people to act in coercive ways and controlling ways against others. Uh, and, and this thing that they've been injecting from the original Wuhan version, that the uh, Omni version, excuse me, the Omicron version just gets right around. It's completely ineffective against. They want you to get another one of those shots that it doesn't work for. Why? Who benefits from that? A number of people. The people who sell it make billions of dollars. And the people who are able to keep power and control over your lives maintain their power and control. So I tell you, the Adventist institutions, the Adventist church needs to stand up for liberty. Just like the, the Southwestern Adventist Conference wrote a letter to North American Division, and every agency of the church needs to begin advocating for freedom of conscience and liberty and truthfulness and openness, the principles of God's government that our church has always stood for, and openness, a free dialogue, an exchange of honest and open information that has been historically true, the, the cessation of all censorship. I can't tell you the corruption that has been happening. I don't know if you know, there is a peer-reviewed... Uh, journal article uh, that uh, was accepted by one of the journals on the um, on the cardiac damage happening from the vaccines. I believe that's what it was about. I can I can get the reference. After it was accepted, after the contracts were signed, after the initial payments, all the payments were made. The parent company of the publishing uh, peer review journal blocked its publication. Not because it was scientifically wrong, but because its conclusions go against the narrative. That's medical censorship. Obstructing information from actually getting out into the scientific community because it doesn't fit the, the, the fraudulent messaging about vaccine safety or the dangers of this, uh, of the, or the lack of danger of the actual virus. It's, it's really corrupt what's happening. I wish I had more time to go into the rest of the lesson. It's good stuff in the notes. I encourage you to, to, to look there. I just wanted to say I read a quote this week that said I'd rather have questions with no answers than answers that I can't question. Oh, that's great. So, so say that again louder. I'd rather have questions with no answers than answers that you cannot question. Oh, that's brilliant. That's another brilliant one. I'll have to remember that one. I'll have to use that one. I'm using that one. That's really good. Yes. Uh, as Graham Maxwell used to say, blessed are the wise. W-H-Y-S. Why? 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 Blessed are the wise. Why? Okay? That's right. Blessed. Why? Those are the blessed ones because they're inquiring to understand the reasons for things. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are the God of truth and you invite our questions you want us to think, to reason, to inquire, to look at the evidence. What's happening in this world is so corrupt, comes from the father of lies, to damage and destroy minds and condition people to not think and to accept authority without reason. Lord, we pray that you, your spirit will be poured out. Empower us to be more effective. Uh, at this time, let, let, let your people be convicted of where the truth lies and follow the truth in their lives. And then, Father, give, give the interventions and the protections like you did your servants through history. As we face the trials and the difficulties, show us where we need to stand and then use those, that, those, those moments, those, those standing up for truth to bring glory to your name and bring, bring um, more attention to the cause of, of your kingdom. 
that more lives will be let out of this dark world into your glorious light. We pray in your holy name. Amen.